Hey, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for downloading in, podcasting in, streaming in, uh, however you find yourself able to be with us this morning uh, for the message. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather together as we can in this odd circumstance that we find ourselves in. Uh, just a word of caution, Just I know that so many are hopeful in returning to a sense of normalcy and gathering together and so on and so forth. And I know certain dates have been thrown out there for certain things, but just want to remind everyone, just as we were ahead of the curve in uh, stepping away from gathering together, we will most likely be behind the curve when certain businesses and dynamics start to loosen the restraints on gathering together. Uh, we always want to follow our civic authority. We also always want to be safe and smart. Uh, so I just wanted to communicate that. We're looking forward to gathering together uh, when it is safe to do so. Uh, we love you. We miss you. And uh, just on that note as well, uh, groups are being launched this week here at Life Church. Real life specific groups have been going on for a couple of weeks. You can go to the website, uh, lifechurchvirginia.com, get registered in a real life specific group if you are in middle school or high school, and, and get registered in a group or two or three uh, here at the church. There are lots of opportunities, lots of different times during the week. So please uh, make some space to find growth and community even in this uh, circumstance wherein we find ourselves. All right, let's get into the scripture, shall we? Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. <clears throat> While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, this is one of my favorite moments in scripture, follow me. Follow me. Akalutheo is the original language. It means not just to get in line behind me and step where I step, go where I go, but Akalutheo means let me do life with you. I would like you to do your life with me. And he gives this invitation, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let me just pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity again to gather in this place, uh, wherever we find ourselves. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your spirit that leads and guides. Father, we ask again for our world to find healing, uh, physical, emotional. We pray for wisdom to doctors and safety uh, to all those on the front lines, um, doctors, nurses, uh, healthcare officials, and um, scientists as they search for uh, vaccines and, and, and remedies. Father, those who serve us in the food industry, Father, we ask that you would just help protect and our whole world would know healing, would know wholeness. Um, and we just ask for your uh, mercy, fresh mercy this morning. We love you. We honor you. Bless our time and our conversation today. We give you these moments and we ask that you take them and use them, grow us, mold us, shape us, make us more into your image. In Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. Amen and amen. You know, well, we just concluded the series 71 words, showing us how to pray, think, dream, interact, be human. Because God's response 
to his closest followers asking, teach us to pray, was so much more encompassing than just how to hold your hands and pray in a certain way. Prayer and asking how do we pray was more about living your life. How do you will? How do you lean with your soul? And so we took some time and hopefully you were uh, encouraged by that series. Next week, we'll begin another series, excuse me, using Philippians 4, verses 11 through 20, a familiar passage of scripture. Uh, Verse 13 is very well known. For the basis of our conversation, we will look at that whole passage, and, and our conversation will be entitled, The Ferocious Fight for Satisfaction, because our Creator craves for His creation, us, to be content. Today, though, I want to give a standalone conversation. Lessons from Jesus in a storm. Lessons from Jesus in a storm. As I've communicated before, I don't want to focus on our present circumstance. I don't want to be short-sighted in God's presence or myopic in our view and awareness. At the same time, I always want to acknowledge, never ignore where we are and what we're in. I hope you all feel we're managing that tension well. I think we would all agree the analogy of a storm serves to illustrate well this, our present circumstance. Today, I want to look at Jesus' interactions with an example in a storm, as well as those around him to hopefully glean wisdom for our own application, maybe some much-needed mercy for our weary souls, and the ability to engage God's life-giving grace for our here and now, but also, in addition, to help us carry over such for our futures as well. Because make no mistake about it, church, as awful and as harmful and as gut-wrenching as this whole thing has been thus far, and, and we really don't know how far along we are. We might be starting to come down the bell curve. We, we might be in the middle. We might be approaching the middle. But, but as awful and as harmful and as gut-wrenching as this whole thing has been, I know there are things that I want to take from this into my future. Now, let me be clear. I'd rather I, you, we, all of us had never been here. I certainly don't want to return to this place, and yet there is legitimate beauty to be taken from these ashes. Appreciation for the many things I've, I've taken for granted, the gathering together, the ability to just hug someone you haven't seen for a while, or to hear voices and shake a hand. There's a slowness that I honestly have enjoyed. I mean, there are lots of things that have picked up speed and learning curves have been difficult and extra work and extra efforts for certain things, but there's a slowness that I want to take into my future from this as well. I've seen pictures of downtown Los Angeles that the pollution has receded so much that there are clear skies on a day-to-day basis. There, there were pictures and images, too, of an, a village in India that had not seen the Himalayan mountains for decades because of all the pollution. But because of people staying still, it's just, it, it has had far-reaching effects on our planet, even. Their slowness is a, is a good thing. Uh, The fresh reminders that I am not in control. And while 
if given the opportunity, I do choose to want to be in control. This whole circumstance has reminded me, hey, Christoph, you are not in control. And that's not a bad thing. I want to take from this circumstance the fragility of life. That here, one day, gone tomorrow. And again, I don't want any of that. I I wish no one would have experienced that. But that reminder does me good in some way. Also, humanity's connectedness and, and interdependence. I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, from the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere, or one side of the planet to the other. This has reminded me that, man, we are all in this together. So, if you're taking notes this morning, the title of our conversation is Lessons from Jesus in a Storm. Lessons from Jesus in a storm. First, let me explain what I'm talking about when I say storm. Uh, We'll look at one actual storm that is in three of the four Gospels, but we'll look at a couple other passages too that house this illustrative and instructive storm I wish to define. For our conversation this morning, a storm is often an unknown or unforeseen but always turbulent circumstance that changes our outside surroundings while challenging our inside essence. Let me say that again. A storm, for the sake of our conversation, is an unknown or unforeseen but always turbulent circumstance that changes our outside surroundings while challenging our inside essence. Think of a summer thunderstorm. We had a bit of a thunderstorm or or really rainstorm on Saturday morning early. The pitter-patter of rain is not what I'm talking about when I mention the storm. A thunderstorm in the summer is such that, man, there's raging winds, there's the crack of thunder, there's a flash of lightning. You kind of get the sense, you pull back, and you're a little bit anxious maybe, wondering about what you should have closed and what you left outside. And then when it's all said and done and the sun comes out, you might walk out of your door and find some tree branches in different places. Are you with me today? You might find some things you did left out on the right side of the yard, they are now in the left side of the backyard. Think a trying season. When something is happening in your life and your outside world gets discombobulated and maybe even shifts and shapes differently and the inside of you is forced to come to a place of recognition that things just aren't the same. This is what I mean when I talk about the storm. I remember one time My wife and uh, three kids, Zoe was young at this point, so uh, it was about five years ago, four or five years ago, I knew I was at work at church and I knew that they were out on a bike ride and on a little run and and all of a sudden this summer storm kicked up out of nowhere. And I I just, I I remember, man, my wife thought she was going to go out and I looked outside the window and it was just pouring and raging and I for some reason thought, I need to get home. And I ran and got in my van. And as I was driving home, I came to the last turn to come to our neighborhood. And there's Jude laid out in the middle of the road. Actually, his bike was laid out in the middle of the road. The just torrential downpour screaming, Mom, Zoe. He was about six or seven. And just screaming, Mom, Zoe. I got out of the van. He's staying in the middle of the road in this torrential downpour. I said, what are you doing? He's like, I lost, Mom. I lost, Zoe. I literally grabbed his bike, threw it into the van, grabbed him, threw him into the van, drove home to find 
Tanya, Zoe, and Asa in the garage, shivering. Everybody wondered, where is Jude? Well, they were on this bike ride, and Tanya felt a storm kept kicking up and sent the boys home alone, and she took a cut through and got home. But in the course of getting home, Jude and Asa realized Mom and Zoe weren't with them. And Asa was like, Mom told us to stay here. And Jude was like, but what about Zoe? What about Mom? They're trapped out there. And so Jude went looking for them and couldn't because he didn't know they took a cut through. All of those details to explain to you this massive storm ripped out and did some things on the outside, but also shifted some things in my boy on the inside. The next couple of times you're like, hey, you want to go for a bike ride? He's like, I don't know. Is it supposed to rain? I don't know. Is there supposed to be a thunderstorm? Storms have a capacity to, yes, change the outside, but they also challenge something on the inside. I guarantee you how we function and do life on the outside is not just going to be different in our here and now, but when we step into the future, there are going to be some different things on the outside. And even more important to acknowledge is the challenge that's being put upon us on the inside that will carry over to our future as well. So, these storms and Jesus. The first I'd look, like to look at is Lazarus' death in John chapter 11. Now, again, this is not a storm uh, in terms of weather, but there's a storm nature because there is an external happening. There, there's the passing of a life. There's the circumstances that are worked out that changes the outside relationships, and, but there's also something on the inside. There are three prominent players in this passage who are handling the turbulence. Lazarus' reality is, is kind of a bystander in this story. There's Martha, there's Mary, Lazarus' sisters, and Jesus. Martha, Mary, and Jesus. I want to read first about Martha. Martha is an interesting person in the scriptures. In chapter 11 of John's gospel, verse 20, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. It says, verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. It, even in that first statement that Martha makes, it, I don't mean to add anything to scripture, but she seems a little frustrated, doesn't she? I mean, she seems like uh, just a little bit on edge. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But you feel like she's kind of pulling herself back. Even now I know you can work this thing out. And we know that Martha didn't even wait for Jesus to get to her. Martha heard he was coming and she ran out to meet him. It doesn't sound like either she was excited running out, but maybe a little bit angry. Come on, are you with me? When someone should have been home earlier, hello parents, and you go out to meet them at the door, are you with me today? <laughs> and the reality is later, when Jesus is moving in, to actually raise Lazarus from the dead. He asks for the tomb, the, the stone to be rolled away. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor for he's been dead for four days. Again, this is not a hopeful, filled with good expectation response. This sounds really frustrated. Perhaps, dare I say, even angry that this is unfolding in this way. Martha responds to the turbulence, to the storm, with frenetic energy. You can almost feel in these verses her anxious energy undergirded by this like 
weird, passive-aggressive frustration. This is how Martha responds to the storm. The storm, again, being Lazarus' death in these moments that they're working out. Meanwhile, her sister Mary is functioning in a totally different realm. In verse 20, Martha hears that Jesus is coming. She went out and met him, goes out a ways, as we find later in the scriptures, and just a few lines down, verses down. It says, but Mary remained. Mary remained. She, she paused and, and, and was present and stayed. Verse 34 he said, where have you laid him? And, and, and they, they kind of go back and forth. But it sounds like at one point, verse 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her. That's important for me because it, it, it communicates that Mary's been sitting for a while. She's been still for a while. And then when she goes up, everybody's like, whoa, whoa, Mary's going somewhere. And so since she moved, she who was probably very still for a long period of time, is moving now, they all move. Where Martha has this frenetic energy, this this almost anxious, just passive-aggressive frustration, Mary has chosen to sit idle. She's almost anesthetized. She's numbed by the moment. They're both angry, but one moves, the other retreats. And then we have our Jesus, who again, I I grant you, Jesus is not just some guy. Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. But as we spoke about in our last series, he's not just God. He's also giving us a way to go. Jesus' response to this storm is emotional. In verse 35 of John chapter 11, it says, Jesus wept. He weeps. I mean, Think about that for a moment. He knows and speaks to the healing that will happen. He knows there will be a passing and a better future. As he hears about Lazarus' illness in verse 4, he says this, Jesus says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He says again in verse Four, or verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He says again in verse 14, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Again, speaking to raising him. My point in bringing all of this to the surface is that Jesus knows Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. Jesus knows Lazarus is going to have another day. And yet, he weeps in verse 35. And so, if I can plainly juxtapose these three players, they're all handling the turbulence of storm. Mary is paralyzed. Martha represses and kind of geeks out in this angry, passive-aggressive reality. Jesus makes healthy space for himself to have appropriate emotions. Another storm I want to look at is in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. Uh, It's the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is going, and he's going to pray. Now, 
how this is a storm. Again, the outside circumstances that change everything around, but then challenges our inside essence. I mean, Jesus is being prepared for crucifixion. There are soldiers coming for his arrest. There's Pilate waiting for a trial. There's so many moving parts going on on the outside, and his leadership is going to all of a sudden, for the moment, be squashed and dreams taken down. How do we function? Where do we go? All of this beginning to come to pass in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a storm moment in the scriptures. And in this storm, we again have multiple frames, just as we did in Lazarus' death. Along with Jesus and his response, we also have the response of different disciples. In Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, the disciples are immediately immediately worn out by the weight of the moment. We can assume they want to support and do and watch with. I mean, Jesus takes them and says, hey, let's go together. Come with me, please, to this place. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Matthew chapter 26. He's going to this place to pray, church, and he brings his disciples with him. There are so many times in the Gospels where Jesus kind of sneaks away to pray. He goes to the mountains to pray. He kind of tucks himself beyond. But in this scenario, he wants them with him, and so he takes them with him and asks them to pray. But they, we find, are worn out. They just don't have it within them. They literally fall asleep. They're so affected by the storm. Listen, church, they're so affected by what is going on around them, what is moving and shifting and shaping, that they just fall asleep. They're exhausted. Jesus is very much affected by the weight as well. He feels it. He experiences. In Luke's telling, he he is feeling it so much that blood begins to drip, the, the passion of the moment, the praying, the, the effort that's being yielded from his body. And, and let me just say, this is not just supposed to be some illustrative literary thing that communicates a lot is going on. This is an actual physical outworking that Jesus is, is showing. He also talks about what he is feeling. In Matthew's remarks, It's interesting because he says he brings all of the disciples and tells them, I'm going to go over there. You guys pray. But then he takes even further Peter and the sons of Zebedee. And he begins, the Bible says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, so he begins to be sorrowful and troubled. And he turns to Peter and James and John who are with him. And he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So we have the, the disciples, the, the whole of the disciples, they're with Jesus in the garden. And then Jesus needs to go further and needs to pray more and he becomes even more troubled. So he takes Peter, James, and John and he shares with them. He tells them his heart, where he is. And he then prays for his circumstance to change while also allowing the circumstance to change him according to God's will for him. It says, Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup from me 
let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He goes back and frustratingly kind of nudges the disciples, but he goes and prays a second time. My father, this cannot pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. And a third time, he says the words again. This is all, again, I want to look at lessons from Jesus in a storm. We're talking about our storm here as well. This is all very exhausting, isn't it, church? I mean, where we find ourselves, this quarantine circumstance, the the statistics, the stories, the lives, the it's just a lot. The changes, the homeschooling, the routines and rhythms that have been taken from us. This is all very exhausting. Body and soul. We are feeling the weight of the moment because that's what storms do. Slow down. Church, maybe you you need to even sleep a little bit more. Acknowledge your humanity. Allow yourself to also feel where you are. Do some hard work to find the words you need to say and then talk with those who can bear those words with you. And finally as well, pray. Yeah, let's pray for this to pass, but also pray for God's purpose to be accomplished in you even in this. The final storm I want to look at is is an actual storm. Matthew 14, Mark 6, and, and John 6. This is where Jesus and Peter go walking on the water. And again, this would be a storm because it's a storm. I don't, I don't think I need to paint the picture any more than that. There's a lot to unpack in this very real storm and from the various perspectives, perspectives as well. First, well, let me just give the context. I, I think we probably all know the story, but Jesus is ministering. He's traveling. In Matthew chapter 14, this is the place where he has the feeding of the 5,000. And it says in verse 22, immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples to get into the boat. And so he gets the disciples into the boat. Then Jesus goes back to the crowds and does a few more things, dismisses the crowds. And he goes up. It's one of these times he gets away to pray by himself. It goes into the mountain to pray by himself. When it's evening, he's there all by himself, but the boat is out in the middle of the sea. And then a storm kicks up and the the, the boat becomes beaten by the waves and the wind. And then it says, Jesus went out to them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him, they freaked out. Again, I'm paraphrasing. I'm just going through it. It's a passage of scripture, a story we've all probably heard and we all know. And these disciples are freaking out. They're in the middle of a storm. They, they, they didn't want to do this. Jesus told them to do this. And they start freaking out. It's a ghost. And they cry out in fear. But Jesus speaks to them and tells them, hey, don't worry. Hey, relax. It's just me. Peter answers Jesus' declaration. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water. Jesus says to him, come. And Peter gets out of the boat, starts to walk to him. And then he looks at the wind and is, sees the waves and begins to sink. And he cries out, Jesus, save me. Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately saves him and then asks him, why did you doubt? There's so much happening in this. And I I believe there's so many things we can take from this stormy circumstance and use and apply in our circumstance right now. First, storms are part of life. 
I don't mean to communicate that worldwide pandemics should become an expectation, but storms are a part of life. And maybe even you, if I could speak to honestly, those who are hearing me today, you might be experiencing a storm within the storm. The pandemic might not be your greatest concern. It might be your finances. It might be a relational tear. It might be your marriage that you brought into this place. And yes, everybody's stressed out about these things, but you're stressed about this thing. Storms are a part of life. They're not always attached to punishment or disobedience or or necessary consequences to unhealthy decisions. Jesus told the disciples to get into the boat. Then a storm kicked up. I mean, Jesus is God, right? I mean, He doesn't need a weather app. He knows what is going to happen, right? So why did he tell them to get into the boat? Why did he do that to them? Is this all just one big sort of lesson? Storms are just a part of life. Jesus told the disciples to get into the boat, and then a storm came. I mean, I guess we can debate who did what. Or, or why we find ourselves here, what live animal was sold where, or what country is responsible, who didn't respond quick enough, who has been rude, who has been nice, who did what perfectly, which doctor's manners we like more. And that's just one section of news before the first commercial break. Here's what matters, church. Storms are a part of living. Yes, even when we follow Jesus. Another piece from this stormy circumstance in Matthew chapter 14. God doesn't leave us to ourselves. God doesn't leave us alone. He comes to us. It says in verse 25 of Matthew 14, And in the fourth watch of the night, He came to them. He came to them. There is this recurring theme in Jesus' life, ministry, and his teachings, that God doesn't sit back. God comes to. Luke 15 is one of the most distilled moments and one of the most celebrated passages of Scripture, I think because we all here, maybe we don't understand, but we feel the heartbeat of the Father. It's the story where Jesus tells parable after parable after parable, illustrating that God comes to us. Creation moves not to Creator, but the other way around. Luke 15, we have the shepherd who leaves for the lost one, the seeking woman trying to find the lost coin, the running father just bent on redemption and making whole. God doesn't leave us to ourselves alone. We see also in this an interesting divide in the disciples. The majority gather in fear. Peter rises or or falls, whichever perspective you want to have, to self-preservation. Where are we in this? Are we gathering in fear? Or are we just preserving of selves? Is there a community aspect that we're trying to seek out? Or are we just trying to take 
care of me, myself, and I. Again, lessons we can take from all the players in these storms. And finally, while winds and waves, which are seen in unseen turbulence, are part and parcel of our stormy circumstance, we shouldn't ignore them, but also, according to Jesus' telling, he takes the hand of Peter as he's sinking into the water because Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, took his eyes or rather his attention from the invitation of God to, hey, move forward, hey, come to me. And he says, why were you doubting? There's seemingly something Jesus is trying to get at that, hey, you could have maintained a focus on me. We can seemingly maintain a focus on God, His goodness, His offered and sufficient grace, no matter what is going on around us. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm just saying it seems available. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, And Ecclesiastes, of course, is the chief voice in the scriptures on seasons. But in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 8, we are told the end of a thing is better than the beginning. And the patient, those positioned to learn, are better than the proud, those who believe they know. I rearranged and paraphrased a bit. And there's so much more wisdom in those words surrounding than just this. But what I'm encouraged with by these words, the end of a thing is better than the beginning, is simply that even in this, where we are, no matter what that is, but here and now, in this circumstance, there is potential. Potential. Not because of this, but because of the God who loves us, is for us, and aches to be with us. In this, the resonating truth is found in Romans when Paul says, He's the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. We are not lashed to our present moment alone. Genesis, there's a story of Joseph. Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat. We're all familiar with the different tellings of Joseph. But in Genesis 50, Joseph is relating to his family and those around him. And he makes a statement, what was meant for evil, God means for good. What was meant for evil, God means for good. And of course, we have to remind ourselves every time that word good comes up, it's not just a a preferential thing. Biblical good means productive able to bear fruit, fertile soil. Joseph, of course, was left for dead, was sold into slavery, was taken to Potiphar's house, thrown in a prison, to a pit, prison, all those things. And yet he was then elevated and then used, second command over all of Egypt, used to save his family and so many others. What was meant for evil, God means for good. I'm not here to communicate today that God did this. But I am here to say that God can use this. While the cosmos and way of the earth conspires against you, Christ and his kingdom is committed to you. Man, come on. Come on. While the cosmos and way of the world, the way things go on earth, While those things conspire against you, Christ and his kingdom is committed to you. Perhaps you find yourself resonating with something in the gospel narratives I worked through. Maybe something in you clicked as I described Mary, 
or, or Peter, or you can relate to Martha and that kind of just anxious anger that you have kind of seeping out of your pores. Or, or maybe you're, you can really connect with the disciples who keep falling asleep because, man, this is all so exhausting. I'm sure there's something in all of us, too, that aspires to the example of Jesus. But let it be more. Let it be more than an ignited aspiration or that disappointment we feel in a missed opportunity to because, man, I just, I, I didn't act like Jesus. Receive him as an invitation. May we learn lessons from Jesus in a storm. May we accept his grace that is sufficient for our moment. You know, if you're here today and listening, uh, I, I've given this opportunity and I'd like to give it again for you to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He is for you. I know everything seems to be against you right now. I know that you're scared. I know that you're frustrated. I know that you're confused. I know you, we're all probably lots of things, but I want you to know that God loves you, that God is for you, and He wants to be with you. He wants to encourage you. He wants to speak to you. But here's the thing. God is the ultimate gentleman. In Revelation, it declares that He stands at the door of your heart and knocks. We, we often think that God's just going to do what God wants to do, that God barrels through, that God's bigger than me, so certainly He's going to do whatever it is He wants to do. But God is a gentleman. He only enters in through open doors. And the door that He wants to enter into is your heart. It is your soul. It is to be able to speak to you and, and be with you and com bring comfort to you, deliver His Holy Spirit to you, but you have to open the door of your heart. It's a simple prayer that we're going to pray together. Jesus, I give you my life. If you're here today and, and hearing this, and maybe you resonated with one of the stories or, or the players in those passages, but you need to receive Christ into your heart. You need to recognize all of your efforts will fall short. And you need to recognize that He will never forsake you. You need to be okay with the fact that God isn't against you, that God is for you. So if you'd like to pray that prayer, I'd love to pray that with you. Just go ahead and pray that uh, right now. Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, and maybe it's the first time, maybe it's a recommitment, whatever has led you to that place, we would love to hear from you. Go to our website and go to in, or send us an email at info at lifechurchvirginia.com. But there are different areas you can get connected uh, to us at our website, the info or whatever, and connect with us. We'd love to hear from you so we can support you, so we can come alongside you give you any tools, give you um, anything, whatever we can give you in this season to help continue that connection that you just started with Christ. We're so grateful for the opportunity to pray that prayer with you. And let me leave you all with a benediction as we have talked briefly and hopefully learned some lessons from Jesus in a storm. We find ourselves very much in a storm, do we not, church? We find ourselves very much in a place where our outside surroundings are changing, certainly, but also, and even more demonstratively, 
it, there's a challenge being given to our inside essence. Now, may we be in this storm as God has planted us. Now, let me just say, within this benediction, I do not mean to communicate God has instigated this, but God has planted us and now we're in a storm. May we be in the storm as God has planted us. May we choose healthy and heavenly ways, even in this, our moment, as it is freighted with disappointment, confusion, and pain. Because in spite of all those things, our good future remains available in Him. And may we remember that with Jesus, it only gets better. We love you so much. Stay safe, stay well, and we're looking forward to gathering together in the coming days. And hey, don't forget, go to lifechurchvirginia.com, register for a group or groups, and, and just invest in what God has in this season for growth and community for you. We love you so much. Have a wonderful week.